Have you always dreamed of creating your own beauty products or building your own beauty brand? Welcome to Beauty Business School, the podcast devoted to empowering beauty entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Doreen Block. Join me as we talk with industry insiders, beauty founders, and more to provide you with knowledge and resources for launching your own beauty brand. Enjoy the episode. I am so excited to be here with the founder of Night, Callie Simpson. How are you today, Callie? And thanks so much for joining us. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So I want to start off hearing about your entrepreneurial journey. And in particular, how have you gone from pillows to skincare? Um, So start broadly, but then I would love to hear more about the beauty journey specifically too. Yeah, so how we started to begin with was I was actually, my formal life and my former career, I was in the bedding category, spent almost a decade in that. Um, I come from North Carolina, so that's kind of the epicenter of the home bedding category. Kind of fell into it um, and spent a decade developing sleep accessory products. So anything from sheets, top of bed, pillows, even uh, up to mattresses. And really the the opportunity to um, go off on my own came because I was so bored by the category. Especially Mm -hmm. at the time, it's a super, super stagnant place. And that's from a product perspective, a storytelling and marketing perspective, and even a human capital perspective. So uh, that boredom, that complacency really just encouraged me to do something that would be more exciting, more fun. Always thought I could do something better. Um, And in 2014, started down the journey of developing my own product line. I started first with pillows because in my most recent uh, life, I was selling pillows, actually memory foam pillows, working for a subsidiary of Temper Sealy. And I sold to major, major retailers, anyone from like a Walmart and Sam's Club to department stores like Bloomingdale's and Macy's. Had about $50 million of business underneath me. Had really no care for the product. Yeah, a big, big business in in that item, Um, but really not much care for the product I was selling. So I wanted to really just come out with something that I thought, you know, was was next level and going to be amazing. So through the process of developing this super pillow, we were working with all these incredible different component pieces, and one of them was silk for the pillowcase um, component. And some people might know, I actually didn't at the time, but silk has major beauty benefits to it. And when I learned that through the R&D process, it was kind of a light bulb moment for me because, of course, your pillow is a beauty product. You're spending a third of your life with that, and not just you, but your most important beauty assets, uh, specifically your face. So, of course, your pillow would be Mm -hmm. affecting how you look, and, of course, it would be affecting your skin health. Um, And so having all these amazing benefits to it, when that happened, it was, was, again, a light bulb moment. I was like, this is a story that needs to be told. It's a super powerful story. Um, so it happened pretty organically that we ended up in the, in the beauty space. But I think my overall goal looking back was to create a product that you wanted and not that you needed. So beauty is a perfect place to do that because almost all products are, you know, hedonic goods, things that you want, not necessarily that you need, but you can just have more fun with it. I love that. And I love hearing you talk about that shift between the want and the need. I can speak from personal experience that so far every night product that I've tried has been next level, as you said. And so what is the vision for night as a brand, as a company, 
And how do you think skincare or beauty in general fits into that? I think the our overarching theme of, and again, this has been like super organic process where we've just gotten here step by step, but it's really become this beauty made comfortable story. So I think, you know, going back to antiquated categories, I kind of think that beauty is pain is a pretty antiquated um, adage to, to know. I think mm. there is a way to make beauty comfortable. I think we don't have a lifestyle now that can really support seven separate teens and, and these intense needs. I think it should seamlessly fit in your life. I love the idea of taking ordinary products and optimizing them and create duality effects that are both good for you and, you know, have beauty benefits to them. That's kind of how I see night evolving in every way. Like we're taking products you would use, but we're taking it next level and we're adding all these different benefits for it, making sure it's good for you. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like the path I see us going. That is amazing. And I feel like that correlates itself into my next question for you, which is what is your product development process? How do you know process has, like everything else, every other part of the business has evolved. I mean, when we first got started, I did what I knew. I knew bedding. I, I knew pillows. I knew, you know, the component pieces we were working with, textiles. Um, and once we got that product out there in the market, it really has become a lot driven by the consumer. So I take it very seriously when a, when a customer emails in and, you know, has a way that they could improve the product or, or a concern about the product. And that's really when you start seeing those patterns that really drives where you go next. Our all of our products mm -hmm. never launched the perfect one ever, um, but we also have never had a product that didn't have 16 iterations of it. So we're constantly mm -hmm. iterating based on that feedback, and that's really driving a lot of the product development. Um, and then we're we're looking at the trends too, and we're saying, you know, where where do we fit in with what's going on in the world, and and you know what's relevant. Right now, clean beauty is, is, is a huge story, and we naturally fit in there with our story. So mm -hmm. how we tell this story, which is kind of part of the product development process, how we tell this story also evolves with the trends that are, that are relevant today. Amazing. And I want to go a little bit deeper into the steps, very practically speaking, that you took for developing the first um skincare products that you guys have developed how did you decide who to partner with for manufacturing for example so when we first got starting i was lucky i had some contacts so i had mm -hmm. a, a history with them but now we're getting into products where you know i don't have contacts like we just launched a night cream for example and, and we have a sheet mask mm -hmm. these are products with um you know newer manufacturers so if there wasn't an existing relationship or, or something in network, how we found just completely new manufacturers is trade shows, going to different markets, um, oh, okay. meeting, with, meeting with the manufacturers, you're going to get a sampling of their existing products. So you can kind of see the quality that they're capable of. Um, I also am lucky in the fact that, again, I worked for manufacturers. So even though it's in different categories, you can kind of you get an emotional feel for you know, how capable these people are. Um, but you can see how right, okay. they are. Are they delivering samples on time? Or is it consistent? All those kind of things because your manufacturer is huge, you know, huge. That's somebody mm -hmm. who's like, it's, it's the surrogate of your baby. It's giving birth to the, to the product that right. you're going to put out there in the world. So, uh, I'm, I'm pretty careful about it. I always start really slow. If, uh, I do, you know, um, go forward, it's always at the very minimal MOQs that I can. 
Um, I try to mm -hmm. always have at least a backup resource for a product. So if I'm developing one with another, I'm going to be reverse engineering it with a competitor of theirs. So one, I'm keeping them honest mm. from a costing That's perspective. Smart. Yeah. Well, and then two, you also have someone like you don't is of course going deep with relationships is is meaningful for both parties, but you never want to be in a situation where you're you know obligated to them because you don't have any other option. So developing them simultaneously, I think, is is super important. Um, so I always do that as well, and then you're comping it against each other and kind of getting a feel for what's normal. Like it's normal that not everything is going to be perfect. Um, mm. For me, it's always very honest communication. Mm -hmm. That's huge. And depending on where your manufacturer is located, you have to kind of understand the different cultures involved. So there's going to be a totally different culture involved with our Korean supplier versus our Chinese supplier versus our U.S. supplier. So mm. kind of getting a feel for that and understanding what's normal so you can give, you know, appropriate room when necessary and then hold them accountable when necessary, knowing what's what's fair. Um, it's a lot of different things to, to juggle, but if you want to start fresh, go to, go to a trade show and just start comping. Makes sense. And um, when you had mentioned that uh, one of the products had or has had so far like 16 iterations, what is the typical uh, number of iterations before you feel like the product is ready for prime time? So ready, ready for the market. Um, I think I'm a big believer in if you waited for a product to be perfect, you waited too long. It's actually right. I've heard that before. Yeah, that's, that's a Phil Knight quote, not mine. Who's the CEO <laughs> of, of Nike? Um, he says that in Shoe Dog, which is a great book. But I love that book. Yeah, yeah. the the idea is you have to get it out there, and it, you have to get feedback. So, it, it if I'm at a sample level where I'm okay with it, you know, it's something that I would open up my wallet and buy. Um, then I want to go forward with it. A lot of times you approve a sample and you don't get the, the perfect replicate that of in production and you have to pivot or you just don't real you try to make updates in production and one update causes a, a problem on another end. That happens mm. constantly. Um, but again, that's okay. That's part of the process. So if you have a great relationship with your manufacturer, you're working with them and going back and forth and understanding that they have responsibility in this too. So, you know, one of the things mm -hmm. I push hard is not just a quality control checkpoint, but also documentation of that. So you can always push back mm -hmm. anything that is not what you agreed upon to your supplier. If they are held accountable financially for things, they tend to mm -hmm. uh, you know, do a much better job <laughs> at, at giving you what, what is promised. So, you know, just that, that responsibility chain is, is super important. And I don't think there's a number of iterations you have to go through because I think mm -hmm. iterations are going to be infinite literally mm -hmm. infinite um, so get to a place that you're comfortable enough where you're would use that sample in a daily life and you know you can't say anything and if you're not testing the samples yourself then that to me is crazy like you should right you have and your to team be using should be it too. yourself yes yeah like that I, makes sense there's not a nothing we've ever gone to market with that our team hasn't and I take if the more samples I get, the more I'll hand out to everyone, like family, mm -hmm. friends. You want as much feedback as possible because sometimes you're too close to the product to see what the issues are going to be, because you can't think always like uh, a third party, like a consumer. 
So mm-hmm. getting it out there as much as possible. But again, I don't think there's necessarily a too soon. But that that's dependent upon the product too. Obviously, if there's if you're coming out with a product that could like really affect somebody's health and and well being, I would probably say more iterations and not as you want to err on the safe side. Right, right. And do you ever deal with you know if you uh, give a sample to your mom and your best friend and they have conflicting thoughts on the product? Has that ever happened? Always deal with that. Yeah, always. Always. Is, always. What types I, of things? Tell me more. I think. Uh, I think a, a lot of times, you know, you're gonna you're gonna get a product there, and there's gonna be there's always gonna be the person that has um, a more discerning palate for things, and you you kind of just have to pick that up mm-hmm. through experience mm-hmm. and knowing those personalities, and then being able to dissect that feedback you're getting. You know. Consumer insights, whether they're friends, family, or strangers, is a lot about dissecting the data and reading between mm-hmm. the lines. So I think you have to do that a lot and kind of get the feel for things. Um, I mean, if there's ever like a major, major concern with something, you want to err on the side of caution. At least I do. If mm-hmm. it's something where people are like, uh, I don't like this color, and it's more subjective, but it's not going to actually harm their health, mm-hmm. then, you know, I, I feel like that is, you might want to go out wider opinion. But then you have different services you can lean on. I mean, we do internal mm-hmm. consumer insight studies. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's places like Poshly that you can lean into that you can get data from. I was going to say, make, yeah. Yeah, you can make a more, you know, um, thorough decision based on a wider pool of data. And I think that's what you have to do if if you're really concerned about somebody's feedback and you're thinking of ignoring it, but it could be a problem, I would lean into other data insights to to figure it out because in the end of the day the job of a of an entrepreneur is to just at some point take risk and minimize risk simultaneously that's all you're doing is taking risk and minimizing at the same time yeah that is really astute and beautiful feedback and a beautiful reminder and it is interesting too to your point about having to make judgment calls at every moment. And I have often said that even though my day job is running a data business, it is remarkable how many times the data will be very split uh, when it comes to consumer opinion. I mean, sometimes it's very clear that there's one preference, but other times you get the data and it's like, okay, you're back to kind of square one of the the founder or the brand decision maker needing to just make a call. And uh, you're right, at a certain point, you just have to get it out there and hopefully the benefits outweigh any risks. Yep, exactly. And But that is what minimizes the risk mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So if you can lean into that, I when I first started, I didn't realize the importance of that. Um, mm. And as we continue to be a little bit more seasoned in the journey, the importance mm-hmm. of that is cannot be understated. It's, it's huge. It's huge. And the closer you have to a pulse of your business, the more you'll be able to decipher that data and what variables may be affecting that split decision. So then you can make a, you know, a judgment call that's not just purely emotional. Right. And I know we touched a little bit on this. You, you kind of alluded to this around uh, financial incentives for the manufacturers and um, leveraging that to minimize risk. I want to talk more about the money angle. Uh, with this podcast, Beauty Business School, we're focused on empowering beauty entrepreneurs to understand the dollars and cents behind the product launches. And so I would love to hear more about how you decide how to price your products and does the manufacturing location, you mentioned China, Korea, U.S., does that influence the costs and other logistics? So 
the first part of the question, the how do you decide to, to price an item? Yeah. Um, I think when you're going through and developing a business plan, you should have some, you know, target margin requirements. Um, but the number one thing that I think should be leading your pricing conversation, what the consumer opens up their wallet and actually pays for, is the marketplace. Like, you should know your competitors. Mm-hmm. You should know exactly what they're priced at. You should have bought their product. You should know every spec of their product. And then if you can prove that your product is superior to them, then you have a case for going a higher price than them. If you want to price lower than them and do a cost story, then it's okay to take the specs, you know, to make the specs inferior to that. But at some point in your business, without a doubt, you will be asked, why are you price X and why is competitor price Y? And you have to be able to answer that whether it's higher or lower or whatever, but that is what Mm -hmm. the world is going to hold you accountable to. So have a, have a story behind that. Now, if that doesn't meet your margin requirements, whatever you decide those to do, then you could look at your manufacturer and and, and see if you're getting fair costing. But if you're comping it, if you have multiple manufacturers that you're getting costs from, from the same component piece or the same product and it's fair, then, you know, you have to probably re-examine your, your margin requirements. Um, I think it's also important to consider what your channel strategy is as far as when you're figuring out your pricing. So if you're direct consumer, it's going to be, you know, uh, different margins than if you're selling to a retailer. Just, I would say, 99 out of 100 or even 100 out of 100, your margins are going to be lower selling to the retail channel versus the wholesale channel. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, the retail channel versus the direct channel. Direct, yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's reasons why you would still sell wholesale. Obviously, you don't have to spend the marketing dollars. You get huge um, quantities as far as orders go. It can kind of serve as your marketing for you and uh, your brand awareness. So it, it does make sense to go retail. But if you have a plan to go retail, then you kind of have to build your margins in your direct business to be able to provide for retail as well. So mm-hmm. whatever you're pricing on, you know, your website, that's what the the retailers aren't going to go higher than that they're going to want to be competitive so you have to kind of think about that too and then weigh out all those elements and and kind of find the top of the bell curve for where it makes sense um yeah definitely it makes you start with where you need to be probably on the price side and then figure out the the manufacturing a lot of times because of Mm. course it's no secret you're going to get cheaper pricing in, in certain countries um, but you're going to sacrifice other things. So you have, to, you have to weigh all those elements and kind of see what works. And, you know, even though you're going to get maybe less expensive by going offshore, does that make sense? Because you're going to have to probably buy into more inventory. Then you're at the warehouse, that inventory, you have to pay for shipping, you have to deal with those lead times. So you're going to have to weigh all those benefits and kind of see. And there's no perfect, I think, formula for it. It's just kind of trial and error and, and figuring out all the variables that affect it. Has there been a learning curve for you of going from the bedding industry into beauty, or do you find that there are comparable uh, factors in those different industries? Definitely a learning curve, um, but I would say the bedding category is a lot more difficult because you're commoditized. I would Ah, say what people value is different, the aspects of it. Um, Bedding is a lot because it typically, especially – when I was a part of it, which was like pre-2014, so before all these direct-to-consumer bedding companies popped up, 
there was really no uh, big branding going on. I mean, even the brands were, were quite commoditized. If you had like the mm-hmm. Sealy, the Serta, the Simmons, nobody really knows mm-hmm. the difference between them. So um, what mattered was really the price. So getting really lean on manufacturing and, uh, you know, finding those suppliers and, and, and building that kind of infrastructure was hey, more important than, than telling the story. Um, again, at the time, whereas beauty is way more about telling the story than maybe right. the the manufacturing efficiencies in the product. <laughs> so it, it's interesting kind of being the hybrid because I'm trying to take elements of both. Uh, you know, being, a, uh, you know, kind of a manufacturing ninja and really creating a proprietary item, which I think mm-hmm. in both categories is pretty rare. Um, and then mm-hmm. and then telling it in a unique way, because with beauty, there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of big names behind it. So you really have to find your own little path and your own voice, which is different um, than betting. But I would say that's probably my favorite part about making the transition you get to have that you know yeah yes and actually what a perfect segue because you have been so brilliant in building buzz for night and telling your story so I would love to hear um, you know what is your proudest PR moment so far and do you have any um, advice for founders who want to get attention from great news outlets PR has PR has been where we've probably been one of the most fortunate We've had never really in, we've never invested in a PR agency, which is super rare. That's amazing, um, so rare. Or paid, very rare, or paid for PR. I think we're at this age where we might have to pivot away from that. It's not maybe sustainable forever, but you know, for the at least the first couple of years, um, it was super grassroots, super organic, mm-hmm. and tons of tons of proud moments. I mean, we've been on national television over twenty times from. Good Morning America, Amazing. Today Show, The View, Wendy Williams, Access Hollywood, all those big, the talk, like all those big um, talk shows and, and daytime shows. I would say I really, really liked when we were on World News Tonight. So it was prime time. They told the story of us and how we have a Made America aspect to us. So it was kind of the business mm-hmm. side more than just the product and the backstory, which is really cool. Um the New York City.gov, they sponsor a show that I think nationally airs on PBS called Her Big Idea. And it takes women entrepreneurs in New York City and talks about, really does the backstory of them and how New York has inspired them. And New York is such a big part of our DNA. And doing a huge yeah. profile where we did like a three-day shoot. We went to Bloomingdale's and their their director wow. got involved and we got to film in, in the, their flagship store showing our product on the floor. Really like just huge access versus, you know, a three or four minute feature. This was a 20-minute a segment with three days of filming. That, that was really cool. Um, I like telling our story because we're more than just a product and we're a true grassroots company. So that was cool. I would say that the proudest moment was, this is so random, but when my mama was in line at Target and was just flipping through a magazine I never really heard of, Women's Wear, not um, some uh, first women, some magazine I've never heard of, and yeah. there was a big there was a big spread on us, and she just sent oh, me a picture wow. and she was so excited. And that's stuff when you don't know it's coming, mm-hmm. and somebody like in your life just happens to come across it. That's always really fun, even if it's not the biggest thing you've ever had accomplished. Um, that, that was is cool. and then, so incredible. She must have been so three, proud. 
she was she was super she's super into it, especially again when when anyone in your life stumbles across your story organically and just sees it. That's that's always fun. And then three months after we launched, one of our biggest moments was Kylie Jenner like put us on our Snapchat and stuff. And oh, that was amazing. so early in the story that that was cool. Yeah, that so, is I would so say those two moments are are were really fun. Press moments are always fun though because obviously you get a huge lift of sale and then you just see how excited your community is for getting your story out. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And um, just also absolutely incredible to hear that you achieved all of that just with pure hustle. And so is it just a matter of like emailing people? Are you reaching out to people on social media? How have those connections come about? Thank you. All of them have come about in such roundabout ways, but I think it starts with like identifying who you want to reach out to. And right. over time that has drastically changed because you, you know, certain people you think might change the trajectory of your business won't and then vice versa. Um, but, you know, start with, it's okay to start with, you know, whoever you think of and, and brainstorm. Cause if, if nothing else, if you actually get someone to convert, get someone to pose for you, Organically, you're just learning part of that process. So we literally started with like the biggest names we could think of. I mentioned Kylie that same year we were in Kim Kardashian's gift guide. Like we started with like Amazing. the biggest names we could think of. Yeah. And, and just started if we knew somebody who knew somebody, that was great. We would try that path. But most, I would say nine out of 10 of our biggest stuff has been cold reach outs. So literally just DMing them. You don't think they're going to answer you. Whatever. So most of them won't, but you just need one or two to actually respond to make, you know, the whole day or the whole week of of reach outs worth it. Worth and especially that. when you and your team are reaching out, the passion you will be able to convey in that reach out is just unmatched. So I feel like it kind of rises above the other muck they're getting. And mm -hmm. then, you know, sometimes you get awesome people responding and you're so excited and you send them samples and it's, you know, birds chirping, nothing happens. But there's always that one time, you know, and for us, it's been just a lot more than one time where yeah. they actually get it. And if you have an incredible product, which is, you know, mm -hmm. you're launching a business, you should feel very confident, confident that you do have an incredible product. Mm -hmm. Then somebody's going to notice that. Somebody else is going to notice that. So get it into the right hands. I always think that is the best marketing spend you can have. Get into the mm -hmm. right hands and then let them share it with the world. They, can, they won't be able to help themselves, even if they have managers or, you know, don't want them to share stuff because they could monetize it. I have found that people are all human, and when they really love something, mm -hmm. they can't help but share it. Oh, I love that. And I think that also translates to your customers as well, even if they may not have a big following. I know you keep your customers engaged over time. I'd love to hear how you do that. How do you build community, or how do you think about that element of it, kind of the everyday customer? Customers, you know, it, from my last life when I was had all that business underneath me, it was always with big retailers. So I'd never done a direct mm -hmm. business. The customer, direct to consumer, actually being able to communicate with the end user is one of my favorite parts as well of, of so doing this. Um, because we have, you know, a, a strong direct to consumer business and it's awesome. You have those emails or you have those followers and you can tap in and, and get, and they're very vocal for the most part. So, um, one way to keep them engaged is give them a voice. You know, we do internal consumer insight studies. We we ask questions. Um, that's super meaningful. Really investing in customer service. Mm -hmm. So you know, if they if 
they do have any feedback, letting them know they're heard, that keeps them super engaged. Content, like put out meaningful content, not what every single person else is doing. Should be putting your voice mm. in everything you do, your flavor in everything you do, because if not, what are you providing a value versus the other guy? Um, so that's super important. I love to give without asking for anything. We did a huge mm-hmm. campaign where we we had we have about a hundred thousand email subscribers, and I was been looking for things to give without you know getting to the people who have already given to us. And one of the things we came up with was, oh, we'll give our HBO log out to every email subscriber. So we sent out an email giving an HBO login to a hundred thousand consumers. Wow. Um, the problem, we did get a cease and desist by HBO, so <laughs> I wouldn't advise that. But that email can't when we got the cease and desist. Yeah, so you don't you don't necessarily want to do that. But when we got that cease and desist, we sent out another email explaining to our customers why they could no longer log in to that account, and instead we gave them a promo code. And I think the promo code was like Netflix is better twenty, and just gave them like twenty percent <laughs> off for the next I don't know forty eight hours. Anyways, we had so much amazing feedback from that. People were so appreciative of us trying and loved mm-hmm. the vibe of it. And we ended up, even after a lawyer fees, making money on that conversation. So I think when you're putting stuff out there without amazing. the ask, you're going to get that back times 10. So mm-hmm. finding unique ways to give value, you know, I think are super important. That makes sense. And you are so smart, so passionate, just hit the ground running, it seems to me, from the moment that you conceived of this business. Do you have mentors? And what's the best piece of advice that they've ever given you? I do. I have a, I have a couple. I think mentors are super important. Uh, you can't have, like, too many. Um, uh-huh. And they should be from, you know, different walks of life. My, I would say, like, main mentor, he actually came from the betting category. and. He was CEO of a huge home textile uh, manufacturing business for 35 years. So has a lot of experience under his belt. He's giving me a lot of great advice. But the one I always lean into the most is, and probably has served me the best, is jump and grow wings on the way down, mm. which translates to me to, you know, do everything before you're ready to do it. You're going to figure it out. You have to figure it out or you're going hit to the, hit the ground. You know, if you don't grow wings on your way down, then the alternative is is not fun. So yeah. take those leaps and have the confidence that you can figure it out. Um, yes. And that's kind of because constantly with business, you you hit those moments where you're like, oh, man, I don't, you know, it's a little over my head. You're constantly doing things that you have no track record behind. So how do you keep moving forward? And, and the way to die as a business is not not to move forward so you kind of just have to do it anyways and Mm -hmm. i remind myself of that constantly probably 20 times a day that quote comes in my head that is a great motivation to have and a great reminder and i i imagine that night has a lot on the horizon i'd love to hear what's next for you and then also what types of things are motivating you most when it comes to creating new products Next on the horizon, we've, we're really doubling down. We have these strong retail partnerships. So expanding our store to retail is a great way. Depending on how your business is funded, you can choose different channels. Um, we've been all completely bootstrap private funding. So, you know, growing retail serves not yeah. just to grow our business, but also kind of our marketing plan. 
as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can take obviously the profits from that and, and double down on our, on our direct consumer business, which requires a little more of a capital spend. So that's a part of our process, but doing that has really opened us to different price points. So a year and a half ago, we launched another brand that's not night. It's called shine. And it's basically um, a, a lower cost of our story. It's utilizing different technology instead of silk and satin, which is just less expensive. So we can appeal to this broader audience, which has allowed us to go to retail in a, in a much more uh, significant way. So focusing on taking our products that we have now, which are unbelievable, and growing them through all those different channels is is really where we're spending most of our energies. Um, and then what we have on, on the horizon for the future, I mean, so much, again, going to that overarching theme of beauty made comfortable i can see that impacting mm -hmm. so many different items and, and really creating that paradigm shift that we don't need to spend you know half our life on, on our beauty routine we can take these items and, and these products that we're already spending so much time with it and add additional benefits so they seamlessly fit in our lives and, and not the other way around that's where i ultimately want to get to um so yeah a, a lot of stuff but really, really uh, exciting where we can go with that story. Yes, I am so excited to continue following the journey, hopefully being part of it where I can be and supporting you. You are owning the night, owning the day and the night. And I'm so grateful for today's conversation. So inspiring. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us and for always being such an OG supporter. Oh, of course. Uh, anything else as we wrap up? I don't, I don't think so. Just for anyone thinking of doing anything, you know, <laughs> anyone thinking of doing anything, just jumping row wings on the way down, you'll figure it out, you know? Amen. Such a great quote to end on. Thank you so much, Callie. And um, where can folks learn more about Night? DiscoverNight.com. It's our website. Or you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter at DiscoverNight. <laughs>